Well, I attended a church last Sunday which was filled with praise and with preaching and with prayer. I liked it so much, I'm going to start attending there. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called Edgewood. And because I haven't been here for a while, on Thursday, some of the people at Second Winders asked me to introduce myself. (laughs) Well, I told them I used to attend Edgewood, and now I'm coming back. So, Now, I'm grateful to the deacons for allowing me to finish my sabbatical. And I also want to thank many of you who've been supporting our family in prayer while we continue to grieve the unexpected death of our 32-year-old nephew, Alex. Like many of you, we have experienced in a fresh way how brief and how fragile life is and how things can happen so unexpectedly in our lives and in our families. Two years ago, we began our On Mission series from the book of Acts, and we're returning to Acts And Lord willing, we're planning to finish by Easter. I will pick up the pace a bit because, well, we're in the heart of the narrative portion. I'm excited to get back into the book of Acts because in the midst of our messy world, we're reminded that our primary role is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To make disciples who make disciples and then to enfold believers into reproducing churches. Now, I appreciated what Pastor Chad said in our team time this week. We were discussing the benefits of getting back into our study of the book of Acts. Here's what Pastor Chad said. He said, I'm glad we're back in Acts because the context of the early church was an entirely non-Christian world. The church did not have any clout, any prestige, any political capital, and was very likely viewed with suspicion. It was all completely counter-cultural. Feels like we have a lot in common with the early church. That's good insight. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Many of you are in the practice of bringing your Bibles. We also have Bibles in front of you. I'd love for you to see God's Word with your own eyes or feel free to use your mobile app. So let's get our bearings on the book of Acts. In order to do that, we're going to revisit a slide that we put up on the screen some two years ago. Uh, This is from Chuck Swindoll. It's a helpful overview of the book of Acts. Kind of give us a sense of where we've been, where we're going. If you look at the top there, the church established at Jerusalem. Church was born, tested, purified, strengthened. That's Acts chapters 1 through 7. You get to chapter 8, and the gospel goes out to Judea and then out to Samaria. Starts in Jerusalem, goes out like this, almost like in concentric circles. That's chapters 8 through 12. So the gospel's spreading. It's multiplying. We read of lives changing. And then the church expands to the ends of the earth. And the gospel's received by some, rejected by others. Let me point out something else. The first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, primarily the primary character is Peter. When you get to Acts chapter 13 and beyond, we read of the apostle Paul as the primary leader. 
The book begins with evangelism among Jewish people. The book then ends with evangelism among non-Jewish people. We even see that evangelism starts in the city and then goes out into the nation and then cross-culturally. So a little bit of background to help us see where we are. The Apostle Paul and his partner Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit. They're sent out by the Antioch Church church for their first missionary journey. Acts chapter 13 gives the itinerary. So here's where they started. We're going to put a map up to help us get a sense of where this takes place. So let's look far right. You can see a town called Antioch, and we're going to follow the blue arrows here. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out from Antioch. They go to Seleucia, where they now sail to the island of Cyprus, have ministry there, then they head up into a town called Perga, and then will trace his travels. This is his first missionary journey. So they sail 175 miles to Perga, which is modern-day Turkey. Well, let's put a map of Turkey so we can see where all of this took place. Then they traveled north. They went to another city with the same name Antioch, and that we can see up there in the green, Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue where Jewish people worshipped. They gave a lesson from the Old Testament, and they concluded that with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. Many people are like, we want to hear more. So they preach again the following Sabbath, but this time the Jewish leaders become jealous. They drive Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch. Acts chapter 13, verses 51 and 52, if you want to look at that last two verses before we get to our text tonight. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Here's our main idea. Live on mission even when ministry is messy. And I see six ministry principles that you and I can apply right to our lives from Acts chapter 14. Number one, proclaim the gospel boldly in every place possible. Well, let's look beginning in chapter 14. We'll Listen to the first three verses. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and they poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done with their hands. So there's a custom in the synagogue, the service would start, they would recite the Shema, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then they would hear readings from the law and the prophets, and after that, any qualified Jew could stand up and give an address. We see that actually in Acts chapter 13. Notice verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said. 
When Paul had an opportunity to speak in the synagogues, he spoke of the gospel in such a compelling way that many put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and were saved. Verse 2 tells us there were others who refused to believe, and they stirred up the Gentiles, poisoning their minds against the brothers. That word brother literally means from the same womb. So these are brand new believers brand new brothers and sisters, and that all happened through the miracle of the new birth. When Paul and Barnabas saw how these baby believers were being buffeted by these unbelievers, would you know what verse 3 says? So they remained a long time. That can also be translated as therefore. In other words, they saw these new Christians being buffeted, so they said, we're going to stay longer And we're going to minister to these new believers. And they did so with boldness. They spoke frankly with freedom. So team, let's live on mission even when ministry is messy. Number two, endure opposition, polarization, and persecution. Listen to what happens in verses 4 through 7. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Write this down. Whenever there is gospel proclamation, polarization, and persecution are sure to follow. I think of 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me and there are many adversaries. Open door, many adversaries. Luke 12, 51, words of Jesus. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. We read in 2 Timothy three twelve. indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, let's bring this to our world. Isn't there a lot of division in our country right now? Oh my. And do you remember how full the churches were after 9-11 that next Sunday? And do you remember the sense of unity we had as a country? I mean, it's been like torn apart. Our people are polarized. Well, let's bring it even a little bit closer. In churches today, there's disagreement about vaccines and racial issues and politics and immigration and so much more. I was talking to a pastor friend this week, and we both lamented how divided Christians are right now. Here's an interesting observation. Instead of people wanting to talk about doctrine and even doctrinal disagreements, people really aren't doing that anymore. Today, people want to express their views about the virus or their views about politics. Friends, let's take the words of Jesus from Mark 3.25 to heart. And if a house is divided against itself that house will not be able to stand. On Friday, I met with six gospel-preaching pastors 
we called it a pastor roundtable. Three of my pastor friends are from Iowa, three of us uh, from Rock Island. We gather to hear each other's struggles and to encourage one another. One pastor referred to our time together in a text afterwards. He said, that was life-giving. We left reinvigorated to preach the word of God and to call people to repentance so he'll bring revival to our churches and revival to our communities. We've also discussed an initiative to get the gospel to every home in the Quad Cities this spring. I was reminded of Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again so that we might rejoice in you? It's a great prayer to pray, Psalm 85, 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So when Paul and Barnabas learned their enemies were united in a plot to stone them to death, they fled to Lystra and Derby. So let's go back to the map. They're in Iconia, Antioch, and now they go blue line. They go down to Lystra and then on to Derby, onto the next communities. Now, maybe you'd say, man, those guys bailed too early. Well, they were actually being obedient to the command of Christ. Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You see, sometimes God calls us to stay, and we'll see this in our chapter, and other times we're to go. They continued to preach the gospel wherever they went. We saw that in Acts 8, 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, team, Let's live on mission even when ministry is messy and it's messy. Number three, believe that God, believe God to do the miraculous. Join me in verse eight. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Well, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Interestingly, there's no record of a synagogue in this community. So instead of going there to preach, which was his practice, Paul and Barnabas instead head to the streets where they see this crippled man who had never walked. This man locked into Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked intently as if he was straining and stretching to look into his very soul. And somehow Paul could see that this man had faith to be made well, so he commanded him to stand upright on his feet. What an example of Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Much like the crippled men who were healed in Acts 3 and Acts 9, this guy sprang up and began walking. Incidentally, the phrase made well is rendered as saved in other passages. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that God can still do the miraculous today? Good, because he does, and we need to pray that he will continue to do the miraculous. 
You see, we serve a God who's a miracle-working God. I mean, think of the resurrection. So if you say, I don't really believe in miracles, well, if you're a follower of Christ, yes, you do. Let's expect him. He can do anything. Think of it this way. Whenever someone is saved by grace, a miracle has taken place. This past week, there were some events right here in our facility that really excited me. I had our Awana kickoff this past Wednesday. Over 200 people attended. Nearly 60 junior high and high school students, along with their leaders, studied God's word on Wednesday night. On Thursday, over 150 people attended Second Winders. And last night, right here in this room, Our Celebrate Recovery, our Christ-centered recovery ministry, is averaging nearly 70 people. Friends, let's live on mission and expect God to do the miraculous even when ministry is messy. Number four, adjust your methods according to the audience. So when Paul and Barnabas spoke in synagogues, this is fascinating. What'd they do? Well, they quoted the Old Testament. Why? Well, Jewish people were in the synagogues. They knew the Old Testament. That was their Bible. But as you read through the book of Acts, when Paul is preaching to superstitious pagans, well, he took another approach. His starting point was different, but he always finished by pointing people to faith in Christ. Well, let's see it, beginning in verse 11. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, so this man who you know, jumped up and started walking, the guy had never walked, verse 11, the crowd saw what Paul had done. They lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed into the crowd saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news. What's the good news? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So this is crazy. These superstitious people believe that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and Paul was Hermes, like his spokesman. Well, let me give you some backstory. There was a local legend that these two gods had visited their community several years earlier, but only one couple gave them any hospitality. So what the gods do? They destroyed the entire population. And because the people didn't want that to happen again, they were quick to worship Barnabas and Paul. Now, that's just a legend, but that's what the people thought. They were superstitious. So the priest of Zeus brings out oxen to be sacrificed to Paul and Barnabas. 
They figure out what happened, what's happening. They're horrified by it. They tear their garments like that is like a sign of deep mourning. They rush out into the crowd. And here's what they say. Hey, we're just men. We're humans like you are. Then they challenge the people to turn from that empty way of life, idol worship, and instead turn to the living God who's the creator of everything. When I spoke at the funeral for my nephew one week ago today, I preached from John chapter 11. And here's part of what I said. The so-called gods, small g, of other religions are never said to love or lament. They stand far away, far removed from human hurt. In contrast, listen to how Isaiah 53 describes Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with what? Grief. Hebrews 4.15 says the Savior sympathizes with our weaknesses. In John 11.36, we're told that Jesus loved those who were lamenting. Watch this. Jesus is both powerful and he's personal. He's great and he's gracious. He speaks truth and he sheds tears for you when you're grieving. He's close and he'll comfort you. Go quickly to him with your questions and give your grief to God. And when you do, his truth will give you hope when you feel hopeless. And his tears will give you help when you're hurting. You know, the one true and living God is also giving and forgiving. Aren't you glad about that? See, in the past, he permitted the nations to choose their own path. But he made sure to leave witness of himself everywhere. We read in the text, he sent rain showers to earth and satisfaction to souls. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. He is our creator, our provider, and satisfier, and there's no excuse for not believing in his existence. Romans 2.4 says, The kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Friends, no matter how hard it is, let's get back to living on mission, even when ministry is messy and life is hard. Would you notice, number five, that evangelism and discipleship and connecting to a church all work together? Verses 19 to 23 shows where to seek decisions for Christ and make disciples of Christ, and then enfold new believers into an organized church. Well, let's learn together. Look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, and they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. 
When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Would you note how quickly Paul went from a hero... They thought he was a god to a zero. One minute, people wanted to sacrifice to him. And the next, he's almost stoned to death. Would you see that he was dragged out of the city because they thought he was dead? Later, Paul recounted this experience in 2 Corinthians 11.25. He said, three times I was beaten with rods and once I was stoned. He's referring to this. Galatians 6.17 is likely a reference to the same event when Paul writes this, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, I don't think Paul was dead. I mean, it doesn't say he died. They, they dragged him out thinking he was dead. But would you observe he did get up when? When the disciples gathered around him. Oh, would you also observe it doesn't say that they prayed, but my guess is they did. Oh, would you also observe that they're called disciples here? Learners, followers, and that they gathered together. Doesn't it feel good to gather together? I mean, we're designed to be in community with other Christians. Well, after Paul is revived and refreshed, he traveled about 60 miles by foot to Derby. Well, let's just pause there. If you just got hit in the head by a bunch of stones and people thought you were dead... You get up, would you walk 60 miles to the next city? And would you observe what they did when they got there? They preached the gospel. What else did they do? Well, look, it says they made many disciples. This is fascinating to me. The word many means adequate, sufficient, enough. Paul and Barnabas were not going to move to the next place until there were enough disciples there who could make more disciples and spread the gospel in their community. Let's review the definition of a disciple. We established this earlier in the year. A disciple is a believer who lovingly follows Jesus and intentionally helps others follow him. It's striking to read. Verse 21, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Let's go back to the map. This is important when you read the book of Acts. So the blue arrows, remember we started in Antioch, went to the island of Cyprus, went up to Perga, then up to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And now he heads back. Now we see the red area, he arrow. He goes from Derby back to Lystra, what happened at Lystra? He got stoned almost to death. So not only does he walk 60 miles, 
<laughs> to Derby after he gets stoned. He goes back to the place where he was stoned. Would you have done that? I don't think I would have. You know what I would have done if I was Paul? I would have headed the other direction. Here's why. Do you see in the purple there, Cilicia? There's a little black dot. Name of a town, Tarsus. What's significant about Tarsus? It's where Paul was from. He could have said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to my hometown. I know people there. They like me there. Nobody's going to stone me there. Maybe I can go and get healed there. But he doesn't. He goes back to the place that people tried to kill him. Incidentally, on the second missionary journey, which we'll get to, Paul does. He takes a northern route. He does go to Tarsus on his way to, on his second missionary journey. But instead of going back, so he could have had Tarsus and then went right back to Antioch where they were sent out from. They don't do that. What do they do? They retrace their steps and they go from Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Antioch to Perga. Those are communities they had already been in to preach the gospel. Why? Why did they go back to those places? To build up the believers in their faith. You see, they left a bunch of brand new Christians in those communities, and they went back to teach them. I see from this a model that you and I can follow in our own lives. Would you note, number one, they evangelized the lost. It says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. Secondly, they established and strengthened believers. They purposefully, intentionally looked for ways to strengthen, I love this phrase, the souls of the disciples. Do you know anybody whose soul is tired? Do you know anybody who's afraid? Do you know anybody who's sick? Do you know anybody who's disconnected and they're just, they're struggling? Paul purposefully strengthened the souls of the disciples. Number three, they encouraged the brothers and sisters to be faithful. Paul said, keep going. You can do this. I know it's hard, but continue in the faith. The word encourage means to come to the side of someone to bring comfort. The idea behind continue is to remain, stay, and persevere. Would you observe next? They equip the disciples for impending persecution. This was their message. Verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. (laughs) The word tribulation means to crush to press and to squeeze. Paul didn't preach the prosperity gospel, did he? You know what gospel he preached? The persecution gospel. He said, if you're going to get into the kingdom, you're going to have to go through many tribulations. Some of you are like, amen, I'm going through that now. Notice next, they enfolded Christ followers into organized churches. So these brand new believers, there's no churches. Paul then appoints elders for them, spiritual leaders in every church. 
Spiritual leaders were assigned to watch over them. Warren Wiersbe calls the church both an organism and an organization. If an organism is not organized, it will die. And finally, they entrusted the believers to the Lord. We read verse 23, with prayer and fasting. Man, weren't they serious? Prayer and fasting. They're committing these new believers to the Lord in which they had believed. Friends, when God's word is preached, division and persecution follow. And yet, people are saved, disciples are made, churches are launched. One of my favorite verses is found in the parable of the faithful farmer who simply sowed the seed. Listen and be encouraged by what we read in Mark 4, 27. This is what it says about the farmer. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and continues to grow. Here's the phrase that I love. He knows not how. Farmer sees it growing. He does what he's supposed to do. He's like, I don't know how that's, how is, how is that happening? The same as we watch what God's doing in the souls of people as his word is planted. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So as a result of Paul preaching to the pagans, our church is established in Lystra where he was almost stoned to death. Oh, by the way, it was in Lystra that we read that Timothy, his mother Eunice, and grandmother Lewis, or Lois were part of that church. So this missionary team accomplished so much without the modern means of transportation or the modes of instant communication that we have today. Dr. Bob Pierce was spot on. He used to say this, Others have done so much with so little, while we've done so little with so much. Friends, let's live on mission even when ministry is messy. Number six, deepen your partnership with missionaries. The book of Acts makes clear we're to either go cross-culturally or we're to send others who will go with the gospel. There's no third option. One pastor says it rather bluntly. Go, send, or disobey. So Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries, and now they come back to the same place they were sent out from. Why? Well, they want to tell the believers in that church in Antioch what God had done. Let's finish the chapter, verses 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's look at the map one more time. So um, we're looking at the red arrow now. So they're up in Antioch. Well, they were in Lystra. They go up to Antioch. Then they head south. Uh, to Perga, then they head over to Italia. They hadn't been there before, at least according to Acts 14. Then they jump on a ship and they sail all the way back to Antioch where they give a report. Now, interestingly, we don't read of any converts in Perga 
or Italia. We don't hear of any. I'm reminded that our job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel and leave the results with the Lord. You know, some places are fruitful and some are not. Some people are open, others are not. Verse 26 says that they fulfilled the work they were given to do. And our model for this is Jesus, who said in John 17, 4, I finished the work you've given me to do. In Acts 14, 27, we read that Paul and Barnabas arrived back in Antioch. They had been gone about a year. They gave a full report to the gathered church. Can you imagine how exciting this must have been to this church in Antioch? This is the first time the gospel's gone out. Now these missionaries come back and we read, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was a monumental movement of God. The missionaries couldn't wait to share what God was doing. Would you observe, there's no boasting in Paul or Barnabas. They give all the glory to God for what he had done. God alone opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, I wrote down five benefits that you and I can experience when we hear from our GO team partners. Well, first of all, it encourages our missionaries to know we're partnering with them. Secondly, it enlarges our vision for what God is doing around the world. He's a global God. Number three, it engages us to live on mission with our neighbors and to make disciples who make disciples. Number four, it provides an example and a motivation for others that God may be calling into cross-cultural ministry. God is doing that right now, by the way, with several Edgewood members who are in process of serving Christ cross-culturally. And maybe you will be next. Finally, it equips us to be faithful when ministry is messy. Look at verse 28. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The word remain means to rub continually by abiding with. So the more the missionaries spent time with these believers, the more the believers were encouraged in their faith, all for the glory of God. By the way, Phil and Patty Eager. Patty grew up at Edgewood. They're our GO team partners. They minister in Mexico. They'll be here next weekend to give a report for what God has been doing in La Paz. Um, Emma Janisak served with them this summer. Uh, Pray for them because Hurricane Olaf hit their community on Friday. They're okay. Also, we received word that Robin Demarest Uh, Our GO team partner serving in South Africa with her husband, Jeff, uh, went home to be with the Lord uh, this week. Please pray for Jeff and their children as they grieve. I went back and reread some of their prayer letters. Here's their life verse. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond. They wanted to take the gospel to people who hadn't heard the gospel. And this is how they often end their prayer emails so that others may know him. Wow. We get the privilege of partnering with missionaries like that. Well, let's review the principles from this passage and let's consider how God might be prompting each of us to take our next step. So I'll list the principle and then we'll see what the Spirit wants to do in each of our lives. I'll ask a few questions to help us uh, apply this, make a few recommendations. Number one, proclaim the gospel boldly in every place possible. Has it been a while since you've spoken about Christ? 
Well, ask God to give you boldness to share Jesus Christ with one person this week. Number two, endure in the face of opposition, polarization, and persecution. When faced with challenges to your faith, ask God to help you to remain faithful without lashing out. (laughs) Number three, believe God can do the miraculous. Think of one person you know who's far from Christ, and it would take a miracle to bring them to salvation. Pray for that miracle. Pray for their salvation every day. Number four, adjust your methods according to the audience. In what specific way can you build a gospel bridge to someone in your family? How can you find a connect point with a neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate? How can you have a gospel conversation with someone who has a different world view? Well, let me say it like this. How can you have a gospel conversation with someone who has a different political view than you without arguing about politics, but looking for a way to have a gospel conversation? Or how do you have a gospel conversation with someone who thinks about COVID differently than you do. Number five, evangelism, discipleship, and connection to a church all work together. Is there someone you know? Is God tugging at you? Someone you know who needs to be discipled? Is there someone you know who needs to be plugged into church? Make a point this week to reach out to someone. Maybe as you look around, you're like, man, I've not seen so-and-so for a while. Reach out this week and encourage them. And finally, number six, deepen your partnership with missionaries. If you're not financially supporting at least one missionary or mission organization, can I encourage you to do so? I mean, we support missionaries at Edgewood. Like 12% of our budget goes to support missionaries. But would you pray about supporting someone? And many of you already are. I ran into a Christ follower this week who used to live in Afghanistan. Her parents ran a school there. And God has used her and a team of others to help rescue, get this, around 50 students and their family members. They're now in the United States in large part because of the work she and her team did. And she reminded me when I talked to her that because God has brought these unreached Muslims to our country, it's an opportunity now for the church to share the gospel with them. By the way, there are 70 different people groups in Afghanistan. 99.8% of the population Muslim. And I can't help but think God is using all the prayers of his global church to open doors for the gospel. Now, as we continue to hear about people being rescued from Afghanistan, let's remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are still there. In early July, this is weeks before things went south in the country. This is incredible. Many Afghan pastors and church leaders made a bold and courageous decision. Here's their decision. They decided to register their identity as Christians with the Afghan government by declaring their faith on their national ID cards. Let me tell you why that's so difficult 
Many of us don't even say we're Christian. We have a hard time identifying with Christ. In Afghanistan, a Muslim is prohibited from converting to Christianity. And these brothers and sisters in Christ went to register themselves on their national ID as followers of Jesus Christ. According to an interview with Voice of the Martyrs, that's one of the mission agencies we support, this story was also in Christianity Today. These believers were not required to register as Christians, but they did so for the next generation. When asked why they did it, this is what they said. Listen, and I'm going to quote. What about our children and our grandchildren? Someone should make this sacrifice so the next generations can openly call themselves followers of Jesus. Parents and grandparents publicly identifying themselves with Christ in order to benefit their children so that their children can declare themselves as followers of Jesus. A man named Mark Morris reported that shortly after the Taliban takeover, a pastor in Afghanistan received a letter from the Taliban which said in part, and I quote, we know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. What about you? Are you ready to publicly identify yourself as a full-fledged follower of Christ no matter what may happen to you? Friends, let's live on mission even when ministry is messy. In Acts 14.12, the people shouted, The gods have come down in the likeness of men. Well, that's actually a longing that every human heart has, for God to come down to earth. Well, that's spelled out in Isaiah 64.1. Isaiah looks up and he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, tear them apart. God, would you come down here into our mess? I have some great news for you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come down and he is fully God and fully man and he died as full and final sacrifice for our sins. He paid the price, satisfying the righteous and holy wrath of God the Father. And now we're called to turn from the worship of our idols to repent of our sins and to receive Jesus as Savior and live under his leadership for the rest of our lives. And if you're not saved yet, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Would you bow your head? And you could pray something like this. God, I've been drifting. I've certainly not wanted to identify myself with you But, Lord, life is brief, it's short, it's unpredictable. And, Lord, I know you're convicting me. And so instead of running, hiding, justifying, blaming somebody else, or just partying and 
living for myself, Lord, right now, I turn from how I've been living. I repent of my sins. And I turn to you, Jesus, and I ask you to save me. Lord, come into my life. Forgive me for my sins. Thank you for dying in my place instead of me on the cross. And thank you for rising from the dead, showing that you have power over death. You have power over the devil. You have power over depravity. And God, I need that resurrection power in my life. And Lord, now I want to follow you faithfully. But I need you to help me to do that. I want to publicly identify myself with you as your follower, no matter how hard it is and no matter how messy it gets. Use me now for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.